Uh, it's become such a problem that a book was written about it. The book was entitled Cheating in College, Why Students Do It and What Educators Can Do About It. Its authors, McKay, Butterfield, and Trevino, discovered, among other things, that over two-thirds of the college students reporting engaged in some form of cheating. Uh, that there has been a major shift uh, with regards to their attitudes about cheating, that numerous personal and contextual factors actually influence academic cheating. And I thought this was really fascinating, that a deeply embedded honor code can play a key role in creating an ethical environment. So if students actually memorize the honor code, it actually goes to helping people recognize this isn't something that I should do or want to do. And that has implications that we can address at another time. I'm fascinated by the reaction that people get, all of us, when we hear the word exam or test. That there's something inside you that just goes, ugh, there's an exam. I hate being that part of Professor Ryer where I go, we have an exam next week because all of the looks of joy, aren't we glad we took your class, transition to horror, and boy, we don't like you very much at this moment. And I like being liked. And so, you know, being professor-like is my goal. And so having to, you know, give exams is one of my least favorite things to do. I think all of us know that feeling. That feeling of, oh, I'm going to get tested on this, which is why the perennial question comes up in a class. Is this going to be on the test? Like the first, no, your name is not going to be on the test. You do not have to worry about filling out the name at the top. It's not going to be a problem. When we hear test most tighten up, when we hear it in today's scripture, and oftentimes this is the natural reaction to Paul's admonition that we should test ourselves to see whether or not we're in the faith. I know from personal experience when I hear that, Examine yourself. See whether or not you really are a Christian. That does something to me. It, it puts some type of reluctance in me. Perhaps you understand this. You may wonder whether or not you should be scared that maybe because you've sinned in some way that you should be afraid that you aren't a Christian. Or, or maybe, like me, on most days you've not said you were sorry for some way that you've offended the Lord, and maybe you when you hear things like test yourselves to see whether you're in the faith, your initial reaction might be, gosh, I wonder if I'm really a Christian. And I know that there are plenty of us in our darkest hours who have wondered that very thing. And yet, here we are faced with a scripture that tells us to examine ourselves. The Apostle Paul had gone to the Corinthians. We are again after Vision Month 2015 picking up and this month concluding 2015 study in 2 Corinthians. And Paul has dealt with these Corinthians on multiple occasions. He visited them a couple of times, even says at the beginning of this passage, I'm coming a third time. He's also written them at least twice before, and now he's writing his third letter, even though we call it 2 Corinthians. He'd been addressing them on issues of obedience and their heart's rebellion for quite some time, and effectively is saying to these folks, quote, and this is a paraphrase, are you sure you're Christian? Because you don't seem to care that what you're doing is problematic and offensive to God. I, I think that's a great question. And it gets at the heart of what it means for us to think deeply about whether or not we really are believers and what it means to take this exam. Now, here's the exam perpetually before 
Christ's followers. And it's written in verses 5 and 6, okay? The exam that we continuously have in front of us is this. Examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test, I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. So let me spell this out for you. This is the test. The test is, see if you are in the faith. All right? The test success is realizing that Christ Jesus is in you, lives in you. A test fail is discovering Jesus doesn't really live in me. Jesus said as much in John chapter 14, verses 15 through 17. He said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments, you'll keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. The scriptures say that at the moment of your conversion, if you were genuinely a believer, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit came to take up residence in your being. So Christ literally lives in you by his Holy Spirit. So the question on the test is, do we know that Christ lives in us? And how do we know if Jesus lives in us? Let me give you the short answer, and then we're going to unpack the exam in, in a deeper way. But if you are troubled by the actions that are less than hospitable to his presence in your life, that is a great indication that he lives in you. We know Jesus lives in us if we sense that we are doing that which is displeasing to him. Religious guilt, the kind of guilt where you just feel like garbage and you don't know why, is really sometimes feeling bad for getting caught or bad about the consequences of your actions, but not necessarily cognizant of the displeasure this is causing to the God whom you say lives in you. The gospel says that Jesus lives in us by his spirit, and he is working to glorify himself in us. How we live, how we treat others, these things reflect his character and his majesty, and this is pleasing to him. And when our actions are offensive to him, we are called to repent. This is one of those words as well that can create a guttural reflex in you because you've seen enough movies to hear a southern fat person go, repent. And you go, oh Lord, really? Is this what this is about? And, and no, the scriptures talk about repentance merely being a turning away, an admitting we failed, and a following of Christ, turning back to him and by his grace and strength depending on him and saying, I will continue to fall. Brooks is fond of saying in his preaching, when we fall, we fall forward. That's the life of the Christian. We trip, but we trip on our face, and then Jesus picks us up, and we keep following after him. Repentance is the determination to continue to walk after Jesus, even after we blow it. Now, how do you tell the difference between godly sorrow and religious guilt? And here is a really good tip that I got from a friend of mine who's a family therapist. And he works with people who are dealing with deep issues of shame and guilt. And he's had to work through sort of how do you differentiate the two. And he would say this, you know you are dealing with godly sorrow that leads to repentance if in the end you end up more connected to others and God after you confess it. 
In other words, you, you say you've done this and you feel a natural sense of reconnecting to people and to God. This is godly sorrow. Uh, Matt Chandler, the president of our network of churches, is also heard to have said that you know when you're a Christian that when you blow it, you run to God instead of away from him. You, you know when you're a Christian that you don't hide your sin. You know you don't have to. I would like us to think about the whole notion of examining ourselves and testing ourselves and even the subject of repentance and God calling us to change our mind and our heart about following after him and glorifying him in the way we act towards him and each other. I would like us to reframe that and think of it in terms of it being a gift. And you may ask, well, how does God's call to us to repent <laughs> sound like a gift? And, and I'd like you to think about it like this. If you have a friend who confronts you about something you've done that has offended them, they have really done you a tremendous favor by telling you about it because what they are saying in effect is, your relationship matters to me. How many times have you or me had relationships with people and they were just so weird or it got weird and you just said, I'm not just going near them anymore? Or the conflict got so awkward that we just decided those people are done I am done with that relationship. So frequently, this is what happens. We just push people out of our lives, and then we go find new friends. The people that you actually fight through conflict with are people that are vital to your existence. They are people that you love being with, that you enjoy being with, that you want to be with. And so it's worth it to you. You fight through that. I would like you and me, because this is something I'm continuously working through as a Christian, I'm 50 years old, I've been a Christian for over three decades, and I have to tell you, I'm still processing the difference between godly sorrow and religious guilt. And what I can tell you today is one of the things that I'm confident about is that the Scriptures say God has tremendous affection for his children. In Hebrews 12, it says he disciplines those he loves. And if you are never disciplined, then you're probably not one of his children. I would like us to think in these terms. If Jesus is calling you to repent, if he's saying, examine yourself, see if what you do offends my presence, he's saying you matter enough to him that he'd bring it up in the first place. Otherwise, he'd just kind of discard you. He cares enough to say, listen, I'm not going to pretend that what you're doing doesn't offend me in some way. <laughs> if you want me to enjoy being with you and you want to enjoy being with me, we're going to have to have a conversation. You and I are going to have to realize that God loves us enough to not let us harm ourselves by doing stuff he knows is bad for us, but also when our behavior does things that displease him, he loves us enough to say, I want to enjoy you. I don't enjoy you so much when you're acting like that. What a tremendous gift that is to you and I. What a tremendous thing that is. He's saying to you, you're valuable to him. You matter to him. He desires to know you. So it's in that spirit I'd like us to evaluate and really dissect the words of Paul and see what this test of our faith, this examination of our faith, is really all about. So I've got two thoughts for you this morning in this regard. The first is this. The exam, if you will, the exam presumes a deference to Christ's authority. This examination of our faith, it presumes that we are deferring to what Jesus is saying about how life should work. Let's read the scripture again, verses 1 through 3. Paul says, This is the third time I'm coming to you. 
Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warn those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present and on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. Now, let me give you a little context to what's going on. The Corinthians had been kind of been convinced by these outsiders that Paul probably wasn't a really good guy, and they began to question Paul's authority and whether or not Paul was really a true apostle. And it could be that they were lining up. We, we might be able to infer from this passage, according to some commentators, that, that some of these Corinthians were getting ready to level charges against Paul and to test his claims about being a true apostle. So Paul reiterates in this passage this uh, this principle from Deuteronomy 19 that you have to have a couple, three witnesses. This can't just be an individual. We're, if we're going to talk about what people have done wrong, we're going to invoke this Deuteronomy, this, this principle from Deuteronomy 19:15 that demands multiple witnesses. And Paul then uses what's really chutzpah on their part to, for them to say, you know, listen, dude, who do you think you are? We're, we're people and you, you think you're something important. He says, well, listen, since you seem to be ready to examine me with such great vigor, let me encourage you, perhaps it's time you guys examine whether or not you're in the faith. Jesus said in, his, in, in Matthew 28 that all authority in heaven and on earth had been given to him. So we know from Scripture that at least the gospel writers, the New Testament believers who saw the resurrected Christ heard Jesus say that he sits at the right hand of the Father and has been effectively given the business. All right, all authority in heaven and on earth has now been delegated to him. Now, if you look in verse 6, there's something really fascinating here. Paul says he hopes that the Corinthians will discover that Paul hasn't failed the test here. And there's something important for you and I to see in this. And it has to do with Paul's authority to say that he really is speaking for Christ. Paul says he hopes they will discover that he'd pass the test. But what Paul is banking on is that if they reach the conclusion that they genuinely know Jesus, that he really lives in them, because this is test success. They assess their lives. They assess their hearts. They realize Jesus really lives in them. What Paul is banking on is that they'll go, okay, yeah, I really do know the presence of Christ. And then they'll ask this question. How did I hear about this in the first place? Oh, it was from Paul. This is what Paul is hoping, that they will see in their experience the answer to their question, because they are saying, since you, and he says, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. This same demand is made in our day. People say, why in the world should we listen to the New Testament letters of a guy named Paul? What authority is there in these letters? Does it contain the words of Christ? Paul is saying, Christ is speaking in me. Many self-defined Christians, particularly in North America, have made an unfortunate capitulation to postmodern theology, disabling them from sensing any remorse for their sin. They have deconstructed Scripture so that Paul's words in 2 Corinthians no longer hold any real authority in their life. And hence, when Paul says other things... They do not feel any longer like this is not right. I should feel badly about this. Namely, there's a notion that it is good to define Christianity 
not by God's word, but instead by our own notions about what is true or what we feel is right or wrong or that which doesn't contradict the social constructs of our day. Instead of saying scripture is going to be that which forms for me what it means definitively to be a Christian. I'm not going to define Christianity outside of scripture. I may decide I don't want anything to do with Christianity, and that's fair. If you don't want anything to do with Christianity, what can you do? But to actually say, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and redefine it the way I want to according to my own terms, that's something that is uniquely Western in our generation. One uh, a byproduct of this is this idea that I don't ever want to be a part of a church or a part of any religious experience where somebody would say, we must feel guilty for something. Now, I've heard this a lot where people are like, guilt is a bad thing. And sometimes you'll go and you'll realize that shame which is your inability to tell anybody that something has gone drastically wrong in your life or that there has been some tragedy done to you, those aren't good things and unhealthy all the time. We're talking about guilt. The difference is guilt is a good thing if you're guilty. Do you know what they call a person who never feels remorse for what they've done? A sociopath. So my encouragement to us, and I would say Paul would do the same, is to not be a spiritual dexter. You know, to effectively have God's word, you know, that was delivered to the Corinthians formulate for us a moral fabric, a moral framework where we're able to say, I know that what I've done is wrong, and I'm going to confess that this is wrong. It is important for all of us to recognize Paul's authority in this and effectively Christ's authority speaking through Paul that what the scriptures are for us is a standard of what is right and wrong. And this, friends, is what we mean when we say that Christ's authority must be presumed before you can make any examination that Paul's talking about. We have to actually be able to say there is an answer key and Christ is going to provide for us, and in this case through Paul's authority as an apostle, the framework for deciding what is right and what is wrong. All the apostles were given this gospel, not just Paul, all of the original apostles. And for the believer, for the examination to even take place, this has to be a piece of authority in our lives. It has to be the objective right and wrong upon which we build our church, our lives, and really the world in which we live. Jesus' brother Jude, who wrote the book of Jude, Uh, His name was Judas, but you can imagine after Judas Iscariot how everybody kind of went with the nickname, you know? Your name's Judas, huh? No, Jude. My friends call me Jude. Thank you very much. Uh, Jesus had a brother named Judas, and uh, and he was like, please give me a new name, Jesus, like you did Peter. Um, But he said, no, we're just going to keep calling you Judas. Yeah, well, then Jude's good. So Jude wrote a letter. And we're actually going to study next year, one of our new teaching series is going to be Letters from Jesus' Brothers. Don't know if you knew he had two half-brothers. We'll get into the divinity-humanity thing in that process too, by the way. But James was one of Jesus' brothers, and he wrote the epistle from James. And then Jude wrote a letter as well. And Jude said this to the believers he was writing to. Beloved, although I was very eager to write you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Once for all delivered to the saints. 
For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So even Jesus' brother Jude is saying, you know what? We've got to have a standard here. The original apostles were given the gospel. We're going to recognize that there are going to be those who would tend to chip away at this authority, to kind of deny this, and then it does what it would do for any of us. Even as a teenager, you may find yourself saying, you know what, I, I don't know that this is right and wrong. Mom and Dad haven't been really clear about this, so I'm doing what I want to do. We all need a framework so that we can decide whether or not something is right or wrong. This is kind of sort of what the Protestant Reformation was about. It was about a, a restoration of the Scriptures as the as the main, as the thorough, as the only rule of faith and practice, the Latin phrase that the Protestant Reformation used was sola scriptura, scripture alone. I bring this up because not only was yesterday Halloween, it happens to be Reformation Day, it was around 2 o'clock in the afternoon on the eve of the Day of All Saints in October 31, 15, 17, when Martin Luther, hammer in hand, approached the main door of the North Castle Church in Wittenberg and nailed the 95 theses protesting the abuse of indulgences and teaching in the church. This is what Luther was doing. He said, I'm going to nail some protests on a wall and and you're going to have to listen to what I have to say. The first of these theses that Martin Luther nailed on the, the castle church door at Wittenberg was this, our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. For us, if we're going to take an exam where we're going to test whether or not we're in the faith, we're going to have to first and foremost say, there are standards by which we will judge our conduct. And there are standards, if we said that you know, one of the ways we know whether or not we're in the faith or whether in ways we know whether or not Jesus lives in us is whether or not we even care about the things we're doing that displease him. This is where he's saying, I'm calling you to recognize this. And if this is part of your heart, if you say, gosh, I do have a sense of remorse about the things I'm doing that displease the Spirit's presence in my life, then he's saying, you're one of my children. Come, follow me. Walk behind me. Say you're sorry. Let's get on with it. The first thought I had for you today was that the exam presumes a deference to Christ's authority, but it also presumes, and this is our second point, a dependence on Christ's power. Uh, Verses 3 and 4 of 2 Corinthians 13 say, He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you, for he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Paul warns them that since they are demanding proof that Christ is speaking through him, when he comes, they'll have proof. (laughs) But it's not going to be the kind they expect, like visions and miracles. He's saying it's going to be an exercise of the power of Christ to discipline those who have continuously rebelled against the authority of God inside the church. He reminds them that Christ was crucified in weakness, yet he lives now at the right hand of the Father with all of the authority in heaven and on earth. And though he may have been weak in allowing himself to die willingly, 
he is now working in great power in our lives. Now, he could mean in this that he is going to work church discipline. There's also the speculation that Paul could be warning them, as did Peter and others in Acts 5 when they warned two people in the New Testament, Ananias and Sapphira. Listen, you do not want to sort of play fast and loose with truth, and certainly if it's going to harm other people. There is a moment when God will discipline people and externally. And Paul's saying, I'm going to come in power. You're going to see this. This is not good. You want to know if I'm a, a real deal Holofield apostle? This is going to happen. And it's going to happen when I come. So I'm telling you, deal with whatever it is you've got to deal with. Because when I come there, I mean business this time. I would like to point out, though, that there's an aspect to our dependence on Christ's power that makes the examination of our souls possible that is different than Paul's exercising of power in church discipline, which is legitimate. In our passage, it says that the power of the Holy Spirit is present in changing our lives. Salvation in Christ is powerful in our lives for two really important reasons. The power of God, if, if the Holy Spirit has come to live in you, two things have happened for you for real. All right, the scriptures testify to it over and over again. The first is that all of your sins, past, present, and future, have been forgiven. If you pass the test, meaning that Jesus, you discover he lives in you, your sins, things you haven't even done yet, Jesus died for them 2,000 years ago. So there's no more punishment. As we talked about a couple of weeks ago, there is no more judgment. We don't have to be a judging church. We stand judged. What we proclaim is a relief from that judgment. The relief from that condemnation if you'll just look to Christ. So in, in one sense, if Christ really lives in you, you are clean in his sight. It's like you've had the chalkboard of your classroom completely erased of anything that would be impure. Now here's the deal. To get into heaven, you need to be holy, which is not, if you'll go with my classroom college professor analogy with me, it's not just a blank blackboard. You're supposed to have, if you're going to be holy, all kinds of really good things that you've done throughout the course of your life. There is a positive righteousness that is, is, is Jesus. It's loving, it's caring, it's kind. It's always being selfless. It's always putting others first. It's sacrificing at great cost to yourselves. Your blackboard would have to be filled up with all sorts of good works too. And none of us, even if we could get the blackboard clean, they're ever going to be able to produce enough righteousness to prove that we're holy. And this is the good news. If you're a Christian, you don't have to. You don't have to pretend that you're holier than you are. Because as a Christian, what's happened is, is the, Christ, the righteousness of Christ has been credited to you. So Jesus has not only erased the blackboard, he's filled up the blackboard with all of his good works. This is the power of God. In Romans 1, 16 and 17, Paul said this, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in the righteousness of God, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. In 2 Corinthians, we studied this earlier in chapter 5. He says that he, Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us so that in him we could become the righteousness of God. This is the power of the gospel. It frees us 
to admit our sin. It liberates us to confess them, not only to God, but to each other. Because we no longer fear judgment. Someone who has the confidence that Jesus has completely saved them, that they will not be judged eternally, that person is confident that by looking at what they do, they won't be condemned. The more we look at our sinfulness, the more we are amazed by the grace of God extended to us in Christ, and then something beautiful starts to happen. We actually want to start pleasing the Lord. Now, we're not going to do it perfectly. We're going to do it poorly in a lot of ways. Some of us did it poorly this morning before we got here to church. I'm one of them. We're never going to be able to stand and say, I now feel secure that I'm a Christian forever because I did a really good job. The test of whether Christ is in you is whether your disposition now is one towards, I want to please the Spirit who lives in me. I want to love the Lord who loved me. I want to respond in this paradoxical sort of, I can't do this in my own strength and only in Christ am I holy, actually produces in us a desire to be holy and to please Jesus. And this is why at Prism Church, I use the speed bag analogy, I use the sound effect. We hit grace again and again. and We just bang the grace bag. That's all we do here. Because you and I are not going to look deeply into our brokenness, which will make us better wives, better husbands, better fathers, better mothers, better children. We are not going to look into that mess if we're scared that by doing so we're going to be judged. At the moment, we can say, okay, examine myself. Yes, there are some definite things in my life that are displeasing to God. And I am going to confess them to him. I may even be involved in a community group, which we'd encourage you to be, and you could... uh, and, and you could tell others, you know what, I've got this area in my life that's really cruddy and I need your help, I need God's grace, I want to I love God more. This is evidence. This is the evidence that you're in the faith. This is the examination. This is the test. Don't you know that Christ Jesus lives in you? Well, perhaps today you realized he hasn't up to this point. And you'd like him to. John the Apostle wrote in 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10, this is the message we've heard from him and declare to you. And before I read the rest of this, I want you to recognize the the power of that first statement because it really resonates with what we've been talking about before, about Paul having the authority and about Jesus' brother Jude saying, the apostles got this message and we're going to allow them to be authoritative in what they communicate to us about what Jesus told them. So John is saying this, and he walked very closely with Jesus, the disciple whom Jesus loved. This is the message we've heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us, from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claimed we've not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. 
I was a senior in high school when I finally gave my heart to Christ after years of him trying to wrestle me to the ground and me resisting. I tapped out and said, Jesus, uh, I'll follow you. And uh, towards the end of my first semester of my senior year, bright guy that I was taking freshman science, that was a joke, but it didn't go as well as I'd hoped it was going to. I got caught cheating on an exam. And that in and of itself is sort of embarrassing, but the worst part was knowing that I had to tell my parents. Now, my mom, I love her to death. We're close. I'm a mama's boy. And so I was scared to tell her because she tended to get, like, really emotional, and I couldn't deal with that, you know. But my dad, he had a temper, and at times that temper was well, de- deserved the expressions of that temper. I would say my behavior would have merited such behavior. He would say that there were plenty of times where that wasn't the case. So going to dad at that moment seemed the lesser of two evils, but I was actually frightened too because I didn't know what to do. So I wisely, I went to his office <laughs> where he worked with a bunch of other people who, <laughs> and I thought this is a pretty safe place to tell pops about this because he's only going to be able to go so far. And uh, I told him, I went to his office, I, I imagined him going ballistic, and what I saw really transformed one way I viewed my dad. And that was, he was simultaneously disappointed in my actions, but proud that I was able to come to him and tell him what I'd done wrong. My relationship with my dad changed that day. In some ways, I look at that moment and I think that, you know, that was really kind of the day I sort of became a man, as crazy as that sounds, because I thought, you know what, my dad gets me. He understands me. He, he gets that I'm broken, and yet he expects a standard in my life. And I was restored to a real intimacy with my father. And, and I would like for us to think in those terms as well, that Jesus, you may be afraid to come to God and say, I'm sorry I've done this, or I'm sorry that I've been ignoring you about this, or I I know darn well that I've been ignoring you about this, and I haven't really felt badly about it, but I would like to sense that this displeases you so that I could start pleasing you. All of these things you bring to the Father, and according to the Scriptures in 1 John 1, if we confess our sins, verse 9 says, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Our communion table today is about you coming, returning to the Father and saying, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to concur with you, I'm going to confess to you that what I've been doing is displeasing to you. And we're called to examine ourselves before we come to the table. And for some, that may mean recognizing that, you know, up to this point, I don't think I've really been a Christian, but Brooks is going to lead you in a time today where you can pray and receive Christ and say, you know what? Coming to the table today is me telling everybody around me that I'm trusting Christ, that I'm going to turn and follow him, that I've examined myself, and now I know I want the Spirit to live in me. Let us pray. Father, today we're grateful. We're grateful that you are patient and loving and kind, that you are slow to anger. I'm grateful that your word as communicated to your apostles who saw you living Jesus, and they have graciously communicated that abundantly. And for us, we have it in writing, what you said, how you said it, and how we can trust you. 
And so we believe that you have freed us from being afraid of our sins. You, Jesus, are why we no longer need to fear judgment because you took the weight of that guilt on yourself. And so because we are holy in your sight, because of your presence in our lives, we now can look deeply at these things, these areas of our life that we have been keeping hidden, not from you, but from others. And as an evidence of your presence in our life now, we're going to acknowledge those before you. And then maybe, Father, some of my brothers and sisters and I need to confess our sins to somebody we trust as evidence that we are now free and liberated before you to be honest about our need to even want to please you more. I ask for your blessing on this time of response for the glory of Christ.